and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about No Time to Die, the latest installment in the James Bond franchise and the last of Daniel Craig's entries into the franchise itself. Uh, I'm happy to be joined once again by Bond correspondent Fred Cobb. Fred, thanks for being back. Thank you for having me. Good to be back. And Daniel Lima, who's joining us for the first time on a Bond stuff since he talked about the Roger Moore era with us last year. I think that, well, I don't know if that was last year. Time is like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the last year and a half is whatever. I mean, we actually did a lot of those last year. But uh, Daniel, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. It's funny that you're talking about time being weird, you know, considering we're talking about No Time to Die, which got pushed back like, you know, like a dozen times. I know, like, it, it was just, that's why it's so weird thinking about this, because, like, you know, it was, it was, like, the first thing to get moved as a result of the pandemic, and it wasn't that long after that when I started trying to talk about old movies that Fred, like, gave me the idea to, like, revisit the old stuff, but the idea was, like, oh, well, we'll be back in theaters by June 2020, so this will give us something to talk about for, like, you know, a few weeks, and then, like, this will lead into, like, the summer 2020 Bond release, and uh, that obviously uh, did not go according to, to that you plan. Just, you could have just done every single movie. I was going to say, in hindsight, we should have just done one movie per week and done an episode on every single one. We could have, could have gotten, gotten there away with, that in hindsight. With, some, with some time to spare. Yeah, I mean, I there might be like a, a podcast out there that's all about Bond because there's a podcast for everything. But I don't feel like there's anything that's like, you know, uh, that popular that about about that because I feel like I would know about it if there was. So I wouldn't have felt like too much of a um, encroaching on anyone else's territory if we had tried something like that. But uh, we always hit all the eras. And I'm going to talk to Daniel and Fred a little bit about our feelings about the Daniel Craig era overall, because uh, as I said before, it has come to an end. I guess first to like, I guess I'll say I'm going to set up the I'm going to set up the new movie first, though, because I my, a lot of my feelings about the Craig era actually kind of tie into what I think this movie does well and not so well. Um, it, no Time to Die is directed by Carrie Joji Fukunaga, the first ever American director of a Bond movie, actually. Um, it, it's written by him, also Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who I think are kind of more Bond veterans, but also most notably, they also brought in Phoebe Waller-Bridge to help uh, with the screenplay as well. The, the, the movie stars, as, obviously, Daniel Craig, but also uh, Rami Malek joins as uh, one of the Bond villains uh, named uh, Safine. Uh, Leia Sidhu uh, returns as Madeline Swan, uh, his love interest from Spectre. Lashana Lynch is the new 007. Ben Wishaw is back as Q and Naomi Harris back as uh, Moneypenny. Ralph Fiennes as uh, M and uh, Christoph Waltz back as Blofeld and Jeffrey Wright uh, as Felix Leiter. And uh, we also have like some uh, a, a, a very welcome newcomer in Ana de Armas. And we'll talk about her presence in this movie as well. But I think it's notable that this movie kind of like, you know, it takes a lot from Spectre. And I think that kind of ties into what I want to talk about with these movies and that like the, the, the Craig era was just so much more serialized than any of the others. And uh, we, do, we do start with like childhood Madeline as she witnesses the murder of her mother uh, by a masked man. And, uh, in an attempt to kill her father, Mr. White, who's a Spectre assassin, and uh, he, he she ends up shooting the assassin, shooting the assassin, but uh, he survives and tries to capture her, but ultimately saves her when she falls through some water. And then we, we then we jump to the future where uh, Madeline and James are right in the aftermath of Spectre and uh, Spectre, the movie that is, and they're enjoying some uh, time in Italy together. And uh, but then, even though he's like with his new lover, James goes and. Uh, visits the grave of Vesper Lind, who uh, is obviously the uh, Bond girl from Casino Royale. And while there, he's attacked by Spectre assassins and uh, believes that Madeline has betrayed him and uh, leaves her. And then then we jump into the present where, you know, an MI6 scientist is 
uh, captured from an MI6 laboratory along with a, a bioweapon containing nanobots that you know, infect people like a virus, but they're tied to a uh, specific uh, uh, to, to a specific DNA code uh, that can render it, you know, harmless to a lot of people, uh, to most people, but then it's lethal to if it if it comes into contact with that particular person. And uh, Bond kind of gets brought back in to investigate this uh, by the CIA because he's kind of you know just off the grid and and retired from MI6 at that point. And then we're off. Like I mentioned before, we end up meeting a, a new 007 played by Lashana Lynch and uh, some other characters coming to play. And I, I just find it interesting, guys, because, you know, Spectre, I think people had really high hopes for it in 2015 because like a lot of people consider Skyfall one of the, one of the best Bond movies. And uh, it, it was roundly considered a disappointment. And despite that, and despite how much time, I mean, I don't know if they actually had that much extra time to work on this movie. It feels like it because of how long it got delayed. But, you know, I thought I think a lot of people when they first saw this movie were actually kind of surprised that it decided it was going to build so much on a Bond movie that was considered a huge disappointment. And uh, but at the same time, I kind of get them wanting to be consistent. And Fred, we've talked about a lot of Bond movies over the last year and a lot of different eras. And the one thing a lot of those movies have in common is that, you know, Bond, like, you know, he's just kind of like a blank slate at the beginning of every, the following movie, no matter what happens in the previous one, no matter who his love interest was, who, no matter who he kills, whatever, we're just kind of like back to zero with Bond. And that was the one departure from the Craig era. And I'm curious, uh, overall, do you, when you look back on it, do you, think of it favorably compared to the other eras of the different bonds we have had. And if so, how big of a part does the serialized nature of the storytelling play into that? Or is it more just a matter of all the other things that it does, all the other things that these movies do well, or some of them do well? So I'm going to preface my comments uh, by pointing out a few things, because otherwise there's going to be a very real danger that people are going to get the sense uh, that I don't like the Daniel Craig era much. Hmm. And that's not entirely accurate, but I think that uh, there were some fundamental failures in that serialized format that you already alluded to uh, that really came back to haunt it in uh, Spectre, particularly, and also to a lesser extent, um, but definitely to a degree also in No Time to Die. So first of all, Casino Royale has one of my favorite action scenes of all time, which is that uh, chase uh, in Madagascar which was especially important to introduce Daniel Craig because he had gotten a lot of negative press uh, before Casino Royale came out and he was first introduced as Bond. People were thinking that he didn't really look the part. Uh, he wasn't the dandy type figure that Pierce Brosnan was. He was blonde, which was considered a huge sacrilege at the time. Um, and also he uh, made the huge PR faux pas that he was wearing a uh, life jacket when he was first introduced, when he was doing uh, some kind of boat. Uh, horror. PR, yeah, it was awful. And people were thinking, oh, this guy isn't tough enough to be Bond. And then that was basically the first big scene that he did. And people were thinking, oh, man, this is going to be a very different kind of Bond, much grittier, much more aggressive. He's still in the early stages of his career. So that was a great trendsetter um, from what we could expect in the era. And the other thing I want to say is Skyfall, which you already said a lot of people consider to be the best Bond film. Uh, I would go even one step further and say it's one of my top 25 movies of the past decade. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a real shame that because it got a few Oscar nominations at the time that it didn't get a Best Picture nomination at the time because it really should have been in that category. But to me, what I'm mostly associating with the Daniel Craig era is an attempt to move the franchise into the 21st century, but also a little bit of hesitation on the producer's part to fully commit to that. 
And a lot of times you had this really strange balancing act where on one hand you were trying to feed the nostalgia, do, the fan, do a bit of fan service and try to reincorporate some of the older elements of the franchise. But at the same time, they were also trying to modernize it. And there was a lot of strange whiplash going on in some of the uh, movies that Daniel Craig was in where I never felt like they fully came up with a coherent idea for what they wanted his era to look like. And that especially came to bear in terms of the strange progression of the villains and the organizations they worked for. Le Chiffre had his uh, own banking enterprise, which was being funded by Quantum, um, which was really being backed by Spectre. But now <laughs> there's another organization that's kind of uh, even more powerful and more influential than Spectre. So we're going to go into a lot of detail. And I think I've said enough for now in terms of sharing my initial feelings. But I think it's really emblematic what I just described of this problem with the Craig era where they really tried to serialize it. But because there wasn't a roadmap in place by the time they started with Casino Royale, things got really kind of messy and convoluted by the end. And by the time No Time to Die rolled around, there were a lot of elements that had to be wrapped up that people either weren't really interested in anymore or that was so confusing that it was kind of hard to wrap them up um, in a satisfying way. I kind of do agree with that on that, but it, it's interesting to hear that you do have like mixed feelings on the era as a whole, though. I don't, I don't, I don't really see how anyone can, so. I, I don't see how anyone really can't. Cause I, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I, I know Daniel, you said you haven't watched a lot of these recently though. Like you, um, you actually seem like you probably think you recalled liking quantum of solace better than a lot of people. I don't really think that's a good movie and I don't think specter is a good one. So, you know, I think it has some high highs and some low lows, uh, but Daniel, uh, based on what your recollections are from watching all these movies, how do you characterize it compared to like some of the other ones that you might look back more favorably on? Well, uh, first off, I, I will say, I think that out of the five movies of this era, I think Casino Royale might be at the bottom for me. I just prefer like the, the I, there's elements of Spectre and Quantum of Solace. I think I prefer with Quantum of Solace. It might genuinely just be the runtime. Uh, I think it's the only Bond movie below two hours. Anyways, um, see with this era, I'm very conflicted. On the one hand, I have a certain respect for the attempt to reinvent uh, James Bond as like an actual person versus like, you know, this emblematic uh, figure of like British superiority you know what i mean um like you know this was the the craig era was a direct response to the you know uh, kind of audaciousness the uh the bloatedness of the pierce brosnan era the tail end of the brosnan era uh and so you know they tried to make him gritty they tried to make him you know uh, make it uh, the series reflective of its time in a way that i don't really think previous entries were. Uh, it's far more grounded in reality. They question the role of uh, a, an agent, a field agent such as James Bond in a modern world uh, with, you know, where cyber security really is the, uh, the main threat versus like direct action, clandestine ops and such. Um, I have a certain respect for the attempt to kind of reinvent Bond, but Fred is right uh, in that that was a double-edged sword because in trying to ground this character, which is, you know, at root kind of silly, um, you end up with situations such as like uh, this, you know, tangled web of narratives in which, uh, well, I, I feel like part of it might just be in terms of the, the, the organizations that they just didn't have the rights for Spectre until Spectre uh, and they tried writing around it. 
But um, yeah, and then you end up with all these, this tangled web of alliances and organizations and minor characters. Like I'm watching No Time to Die and they're calling back to stuff from, from Quantum of Solace. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't remember this at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't remember stuff from Spectre at all. I barely remembered Madeline Swan's name. <laughs> um, and honestly, you know, for me personally, I do think that in trying to ground this character in reality, the series did somewhat lose uh, the kind of personality that made Bond such a interesting figure to watch throughout all these movies, throughout all these decades. Uh, now, you know, I watch a Bond movie and it's like any other thriller. You know what I mean? I watch No Time to Die and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thriller that I liked ultimately. Um, and I think that it does uh, make some deviations that really do set it apart from pretty much every other movie in the franchise. But it still feels like a thriller versus something like, you know, live and let die, which is by my money for my money, like the worst bond movie. (laughs) Uh, And yet it has a very clear uh, personality to it that, uh, you know, I I feel like the Craig era has generally lacked in its attempt to kind of ground bond in reality. Yeah. I definitely think a lot of those earlier ones like were, you know, certainly goofy in certain aspects and that works to their benefit and it's that's just not something that these movies went for and uh you know i mm-hmm. and if you're not executing in my opinion if you're not executing set pieces on the level of something like skyfall then 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 you should have something like else maybe like that to hang your hat on it's i think it's funny that you that you mentioned like not even really being able to remember what happened in quantum of solace as you're watching it and i don't like quantum of solace but i do i did have some of those same i don't want to say i necessarily had memory issues but i, I certainly had maybe like issues like still caring about vesper lind at this point uh you know uh daniel craig has been bond for uh like 15 years at this point uh in real time uh in our time and it like you know I, I remember thinking, even though I didn't like Quantum of Solace, I thought it was cool that like I, I and I was a much younger and not as like you know well well read moviegoer, well watched moviegoer at that point. So I, I don't know if I even had the level of I didn't have as many reference points for Bond as I do now when I saw Quantum of Solace in theaters. But I remember thinking like, oh, that is new for them that they're still referencing Vesper in this movie, and it's something that like he's going to live with within the course of these movies. And I thought that was kind of cool. But at this point, he's like you know visiting her grave and. I don't necessarily care quite as much about it. And I think another thing was that like, uh, you know, I, especially if you didn't watch Spectre right before, then I really don't know how you were going to get that invested in watching him and Madeline Swan in this movie. Cause I don't really, you know, and even if you had watched Spectre more recently, I, I don't even think it helps that much. Cause my biggest problem with Spectre is that I didn't buy their connection at all. It happens very, very fast. Uh, you know, and, I, and at one I, thing, rem- one, I remember thinking I remember thinking it's like she, she is just like she has she wants and like that's kind of a thing like Bond woos these women and it happens you know I mean yeah sure Bond's a charming guy but he he woos them like very quickly in a lot of movies but it almost happened alarmingly so inspector and that's before you even get to the age gap thing but it was more just like you know uh one second in every scene in the movie she's like I I, I freaking hate you I don't want to be around you right now and then the next second they've gone they're, they're they're in love it's really almost that fast so you know if, if you don't really if you're not that because they don't set it up that well in that movie if you're not that invested in it which i'm not here then that's automatically kind of like a problem with no time to die where like yep. so much of it turns on their relationship that like look if if, if you had done this plot you know if, if like you know if vesper had like survived and then you had done that plot a movie later with vesper like 
that works differently. But here it just doesn't work as much for me. And so there's certain aspects, again, of the serialized storytelling that I do respect. And I think it's something new that I'm glad they tried. But like, if you're going to like have some of these things that like go from movie to movie, be some of the weaker aspects of those movies, then like, I think that's kind of a problem. So overall for me, I'd say like, look, I, I thought Skyfall was like a kick-ass movie because, you know, again, like you kind of buy the beginning of Skyfall that bond, like, cause I, I guess it might be, it's been a while since you've seen it, Daniel, but like the whole thing at the beginning of Skyfall is that like bond is just like kind of a mess and he's had to like, and, and, and they have to like put him through some tests to even see if he's be fit to put back in the field. And right. he, he's, it's just kind of implied like, look, this getting older. He doesn't really have it anymore. When he meets the Javier Benham character, he has hacked uh, MI6 already and like has all of his test results and bond has to find out that he actually failed and they lied to him. And I, I actually bought in that movie that like, Bond was, you know, just like he was just struggling and uh, and, and you, you you felt the weight of those prior two movies. And but at the same time, though, like they did a good enough job of like building the character up throughout the course of the movie that I bought that he could pull off some of the kick ass things he does. So between that and like instead of like having to be invested in any Bond girl and his connection with any of them, because they had that's one of the weaker spots of most of these movies is that he doesn't really have like a, a connection after the with any woman that's that meaningful after Casino Royale they actually give M more of a storyline than M has ever had in Skyfall. So I just think it allocates a lot of its time in much better ways in that movie. And here in No Time to Die, I think it's just like kind of carrying over stuff that doesn't work that well. Whereas like the thing I think, the, the, the thing I think works the best at No Time to Die is the Ana de Armas sequence. And that's the thing that's like disconnected from anything else. So right. um, that, I, that being, I, I'm with you actually on all of that. That being said, I do kind of respect the attempt to, uh, to humanize Bond, I think that this film goes further than any of the previous entries in trying to make Bond feel like a whole person. I agree that like the serialization kind of shoots it in the foot there because nobody really cares about Madeline Swan. But I think that within this film, they do everything uh, as well as they can to establish uh, who she is, uh, what she means to him, uh, what her supposed betrayal means to him and how that shows who he is as a person, you know, unable to trust, uh, you know, uh, beaten down by his, his experiences in the field and within these movies. It's the most human portrayal of Bond I can think of since the ending of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, would you agree, Fred? I think that's right. And um, it, that's also probably why there are so many musical themes being incorporated here from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. That Louis wow, I didn't even song, I didn't even notice that I don't think Louis I that song that's playing in the end credits. Um, and you also have that scene where they drive up that mountain road in Italy, and oh, yeah. at one point I think Bond is the one who says, "We have all the time in the world." And then mm. the song also comes playing. <laughs> so, I mean, you're right; they were very aware that this was going to be the connection that uh, Bond fans were going to make that. This was a movie that has aged incredibly well on Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, didn't get a great reception when it first came out. But over the years, it's become more of a staple in the Bond franchise for a lot of people because it really does try to do something different um, by grounding the character and making him seem more like a human being who actually genuinely does fall in love with a woman. But the difference is that I think his relationship with Tracy in that movie is considerably more believable than it... Uh, ever was in Spectre and No Time to Die. And I will concede when he puts her on the train right before the credits, I was super optimistic that she was going to disappear for a while. And <laughs> even though I'd seen the previews and knew that she was going to play a bigger role, 
I was really hoping she wasn't going to show up until maybe the last 30, 40 minutes and that she wasn't going to have a major part in it anymore. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, about halfway through, uh, they kind of put the whole thing on its head again and they start out with their romance again, which was incredibly disappointing. But Yeah, I mean, no no disrespect to Leigh Sidhu. I don't know if I pronounced her name correctly, the blue with the warmest color girl. But like, I mean, yeah, the character just just not much to her. Um, I think they really do try to uh you know make her feel like a fully fleshed person here but it, it you know there's only so much you can do she's also in mission impossible ghost protocol which i had forgotten um yeah, and, i totally forgot yeah and like so like she has some like you know some action shops and it's just and she's also in the lobster but like in grand Budapest hotel but she's just like not you know that well utilized here and she's done some other movies that i think people feel like are really well regarded that it's like haven't seen uh, but like midnight, midnight in Paris is probably the biggest role that she's been in that I remember from. Yeah, it's just it's just kind of frustrating because I just don't think I, I feel like for someone that's gotten that much screen time across two movies, they could have just like done a lot better with that character, especially given how long this movie is and how I mean, mm. uh, and Spectre is pretty long in its own right, not quite as long as this, but it's like there's plenty of space within those two movies to like do more with her to make it so this that this movie would have like worked a lot better, even maybe if Spectre had no like I think she was their relationship was one of my biggest problems specter so who knows but uh i i just say like I, I, that that was where i dwelled right now i don't know if i had a lot of other big picture necessarily craig era thoughts because like you know I, I that was like my big thing was that like that 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 relationship is at the heart of this movie as in you know it these movies just carry stuff from one to the other and i think that works and it still works to some advantage here because i think daniel craig again like gives a good performance and it, mm. it feels like a good culmination of like everything that came before it from his perspective and you like feel the weight of everything you've seen these last four movies on his face but it's just you know a a lot of the story that he's put through it just doesn't work for me as much because of like other execution if even if i'd say his performances are like a good constant throughout his his run you know yeah i'm with you there i guess i'll kind of start with the action because i that was one thing i was hoping could it would have pulled off in like you know some other like more I don't know. I thought, you know, with how long that this was in production for, because there was a little bit more of a like a delay, even not counting COVID, because I know there was some, you know, there were some other production things and Daniel Craig not even being sure if he wanted to do it. So they had like plenty of time to conceive of this stuff. So I would say like, you know, you'll forgive a lot of other things in movies like this or action movies or Bond movies if you have like some real kick-ass action sequences. And I don't know, Daniel, you're kind of like our resident action movie correspondent. And I'm not going to lie, like I was like, Outside of that Anna de Armas sequence, I was like relatively let down with the action in this movie. And I, 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 I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you had any big takeaways in that regard yourself as to like any missed opportunities you saw or anything that was just kind of like especially disappointing for what you've like maybe I don't want to say you had high expectations for because I know you have very high expectations and um, in general and probably aren't necessarily expecting a Bond movie to hit them. But what? How did you ultimately feel like the movie did? in that regard here, because, you know, like I said before, like a lot of the story didn't work for me. And that was one area I was hoping to pick up the slide. It's funny that you say, you know, I wouldn't have high expectations for the Bond franchise. You are right. But it's funny <laughs> to think because, you know, this is like one of the longest running, most famous action franchise in the world. But at the same time, when you go through these movies, even though they've got plenty of big action set pieces and such, plenty of huge jaw dropping stunts, um, none of none of the movies really... I think, approach the level of action classic. Like there's no, none of these movies have like a standout action scene that makes you go back and go rewatch it. Something like, I don't know, uh, for me, the bathroom fight in, uh, in uh, the, the last Mission Impossible Fallout. 
Um, You know, they've got no real big standout moments. Like, of course, there are famous sequences. Uh, Honestly, the train sequence and I think Goldfinger, I think back to a lot personally. Um, There's like this, there's like a plane sequence and I believe a view to, I mean, not a view to the kill, um, License to Kill or The Living Daylights. One of the Daltons, I think there's like a plane sequence that's pretty impressive. Uh, Truck sequence. Oh, well, there you go. Um, I forgot which one I'm thinking about, but, uh, you know, and even in the Craig era, you know, you have the parkour chase at the beginning of Casino Royale, one of the most iconic action set pieces of the millennium. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Inspector, the opening of Spectre is actually pretty decent in Mexico City. Uh, and there's a train fight Inspector, which is kind of a callback to uh, Goldfinger. If I'm remembering the right movie. from Russia with love, I think you mean by the way from Russia with love. Yes, I I do mean from Russia with love. Thank you for that. Um, and so like, there's plenty of action in the series, but like nothing really goes above like, oh, this is a really competent, well done action scene. I think Skyfall uh, has, uh, for me personally, I think the best sequence is like this one fight um, in front of like the skyscraper. Where like you know they're silhouetted against the blue of the building in oh, front yeah. of them, and like it's beautiful to look at, and it, it it's the kind of thing that you know I'm like that's identifiably Skyfall. Like I couldn't confuse that if I was just walking past the screen with like some other action movie. It has a personality to that scene. Um, here, there is a lot of action, and most of it is you know competent, but nothing really really stands out. Not a lot of it has the uh, not a lot of the set pieces have the kind of uh, rhythm, the kind of internal storytelling that I look for in an action sequence. Uh, certainly not the ending, which uh, to me, it, it, most Bond movies end up with a third act that's incredibly long and taxing with plenty of people running in front of Bond for him to shoot, you know, kind of like almost, mm-hmm. you know, haphazardly and they fall over and such. There's like a, there's an attempt at like a oneer sort of like the uh, the one in Atomic Blonde on a stairwell. Um, and it's it's decent, but it just, you know, we've seen it done better before. Uh, we've seen Kerry Jovi Fukunaga do it better before too. I yeah, he's done, he's done better oneers. Um, the, the one uh, action sequence that I did quite like uh, and the best sequence of the movie uh, is the one with Anna de Armas. Um, in which she teams up with Bond to go infiltrate this Spectre meeting, all hell breaks loose. Uh, and then Lashana Lynch shows up and she's trying to capture the scientists they're trying to capture. So you have these, these two people working at, uh, you know, at rivalries, uh, working at, a, you know, undergoing a certain rivalry, like trying to attain the same goal. Uh, and then you have all these people trying to stop the both of them and they're trying to, you know, get the scientists from one another without like, you know, killing one another. And it's, it's the kind of uh, dense sort of like uh, storytelling within an action sequence that you want to look for. Action scenes should be like their own little short films. That scene really gets it. And because of Anna de Armas, it has the energy that I find has been sorely lacking in the entire Craig era. Um, It feels fun in a way that uh, I want when I go into a Bond movie. Um, Anna de Armas is just infectious. She's this, you know, new CIA recruit. She's really happy to be there. You know, she's deadly sure, but she's, she's, yeah, she's I, like that she, I like that she, I like that she's competent while also like being convincingly new on the job. 
Yes, it's it's a brilliant uh, little sequence. It's, it's a brilliant performance. People were talking about like, oh, is Lashana Lynch going to take over 007? Screw that. Get Ana de Armas. I don't care. Get that, get that kind of energy. You don't, care, you, don't, you don't care that she's not British? Don't care. Don't care. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that's the kind of energy that I think that I guess we can talk about where we want to see the Bond franchise to go toward the end. But that is the kind of energy that I, I want to see in a Bond movie. And, you know, that's what made that action sequence for me uh, stand out from all the others. Yeah, Fred, I mean, did you find yourself wishing more the movie had the tone of the Cuba set piece? Or uh, did some of those other se- sequences that Daniel and I aren't giving as much credit to, did any of them actually work for you more? So I have to admit, I don't know exactly uh, what Phoebe Waller-Bridge's contribution to the script was specifically. But I don't know. I, I, don't, know, I don't know guess. if anyone does. Yeah. If I had to guess, a lot of uh, the banter between Bond and Ana de Amas's character, it's Paloma, right? By the yes, way? yes. If I had to guess, I would say she probably contributed a lot of that because, and you can really tell that past Bond movies uh, have missed this quite a bit. There is a very distinct women's touch in that scene in the sense that in the past, when Bond met characters like that, sort of, rookie agent who's very excited to just be on the job for the first time. And she's meeting this really impressive veteran who has been doing this for ages. Uh, Give it a few minutes and the clothes are going to come off. And there's even like a little bit of a joke in there where uh, she like asks him to get undressed. And he says, well, really already? It's only been a few minutes. And then she holds up the tuxedo and it's all about him getting dressed. Um, And that's a very interesting comparison to a character like Fields, for example, in Quantum of Solace, who kind of fulfilled that same role, that new agent who picked Bond up at the airport and then... Sleeps uh, with him three scenes later. later. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a few, yeah, she's supposed to arrest him, basically, and a few minutes later, they're in bed together. Um, so you can tell that, you know, they learned their lesson and by maybe, again, I can only speculate. I don't know if Phoebe Waller-Bridge really contributed to those scenes, but if I had to guess, that's where I think a lot of that influence comes in. I remember seeing, I'm sorry, I do remember her saying in an interview something along the lines of like, oh, like, you know, these movies, like we need to make sure that these movies treat their women properly. So I feel like her contribution, yes, would have been his interaction with the women. It does stand in contrast with uh, past Craig era. Remember like Skyfall, the uh, the sex scene with the woman right after she tells him about her horrid past and the sex trade. Yeah, and he, oh, yeah. he, he surprises her in the shower. Yeah. <laughs> she walks into yeah. the shower unannounced. God. Yeah. So I think I feel like you're right that Phoebe Waller-Bridge brought, you know, like, like was kind of like the the eye to the script going like, OK, we need to see how he's relating to the women around him. Yeah. But as far as the other action scenes is concerned, I think Daniel's absolutely right. I mean, take the motorcycle slash car chase um, in Italy at the very beginning. So the best thing I can say about that is that it's not edited to shit like the scenes in Quantum of Solace were, which were just mm-hmm. super rapid and you couldn't follow anything that was happening. But at the same time, it's also a very similar scene to how Skyfall opens, actually, which also has a motorcycle chase in a historical, beautiful city over the rooftops. Um, and I thought that was a better shot and more exciting scene. So you immediately invite comparisons, not just to a previous Bond movie, but a Bond movie that only came out a few years ago. Uh, so that's not really the best way to really um, set yourself up from the start. And then in a three-hour movie, you really need to have a little bit more emphasis on those action set pieces. And especially once Bond gets to London and sort of reassumes his old job, there was just a big time period where you really didn't have any sort of uh, 
exciting scenes. It was just a lot of talking. Then Blofeld shows up again for an awkward cameo. But there weren't really any of those uh, just few minutes of like fighting and shooting and chasing that you really needed in a Bond movie to occasionally shake things up. Uh, and that's unfortunate because if you're going to take that much time to really uh, have your audience sit through that, you need to deliver on things like that. And I thought the movie really missed out on that. And it's even more unfortunate because it's kind of strange that you guys both said that it's a Bond movie, so you don't really have high expectations in them. Because I think that's a cliche that was very true in the past, but especially in the Daniel Craig era, they tried really hard to get the best people money could buy to sort of up the pedigree of those movies. Oh, no, no, no. I'm different. I mean, Daniel is like a bit of an action movie, like, you know, scholar. So he, he, he has much higher expectations. Oh, like specifically for the action. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, I was yeah. saying like, you had somebody like, you had Sam Mendes directing the previous. Oh, no, yeah, no, I was talking, yeah, specifically. Oh, oh, okay. Specifically. Okay. Because I was going to say, because in the past, that was never really. The oh, no, they, they got prestige. Them. They definitely have prestige mm-hmm. talent behind the camera now. I, I noticed being that. Camera and, and in front of the camera. Too, right, right, so right. That's, you know, that's almost. Also- I was just going to say, honestly, like almost to its detriment, like I said, uh, the Craig era isn't particularly one of my favorites. And I think a part of it is that uh, in trying to class up and make these, I feel like there's a there's a desire to make these movies feel like real movies, quote unquote, um, especially after the excesses of Brosnan. Uh, and I, I feel like, you know, by having like all this, these pedigree directors and, you know, having like, you know, um, um, what's his name? The, the famous cinematographer I'm, I'm and having Deacon shoot your movie and such, you know, it just ends up, you know, losing its personality a little bit. Sorry. I just, you know, you talking about the, uh, the pedigree. No, you made, you made the same point that I was going to make essentially that you set the bar higher, obviously, but that's not really what the Bond franchise is about to a lot of people. Right. And the other thing is because I think the combination of Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins worked so well on Skyfall, you already mentioned that, uh, really famous fight scene with the two silhouettes mm-hmm. in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. When you have something like that in a movie, then obviously people are going to judge more harshly going forward because clearly <laughs> yeah. you can accomplish things like that. Um, and those were the kinds of scenes that I was really missing in Spectre and No Time to Die. So it's unfortunate that um, they weren't really able to follow up that big success from 2012. Well, you mentioned the pedigree in front of the camera, Fred, and when we were op- opened up and you kind of talked about how like one of the threads that you didn't really love throughout these movies was like, you know, the developing organizations behind it ultimately kind of leading to the reveal of Spectre and how maybe it didn't really like, it, it didn't really track in the way it probably could have, or they probably put a little too much effort into trying to make some connection here. And, you know, I, I want, I mean, just when, speaking strictly with respect to the organization, I definitely don't know if it does a good job of setting that up here with respect to, you know, how this guy, uh, this Safine guy, like, actually, like, how does he even have the power to, like, be more powerful than Spectre, uh, which, <laughs> which, you know, is so well established in Bond canon as just like, a, you know, just such a wide ranging uh, apparatus. But on top of that, you have an Oscar uh, Oscar winning actor giving one of the most perplexing Bond villain performance I've ever seen. Uh, were you a little bit let down like Rami Malek like I was? Because I don't know what the hell he was doing in this movie. So I would say that up to a certain point, I actually really liked what they chose to do with the character. And that's not really about Rami Malek's performance, but about how they set him up uh, to be this really impressive villain who can easily take out a massive organization like Spectre. And in a sense, it reminded me a little bit of how Dr. No was actually treated in the very yeah, first Bond movie. Mm, I love that you said that. I watched Dr. No right before I saw this and I thought the exact same thing. 
Yeah, where he's mentioned a couple of times, just to remind everybody that he's looming in the background and that he's the one pulling the strings. And he also happens to have an island lair, by the way. So that comparison also exists. And then Dr. No doesn't really show up until the last 20, 30 minutes of the movie where he's been built up to the point where the actor doesn't even really need to do that much anymore for us to have a very good idea of what he represents and why he's this powerful entity operating in the background. And I think Safin, up to a certain point, was that character as well. Uh, we meet him just for a few minutes in that terrific opening scene. And then he kind of fades into the background, but we still know that he's the one pulling the strings. And then when he accomplishes his big goal of avenging his family, which he does very impressively and without much difficulty after Spectre was able to evade every single intelligence agency on the planet for years. Um, after that, his motivation has kind of wrapped itself up. So what does he do next? And that's really where things get strange because I never really understood up until the very end what is Safin really trying to accomplish? He has this weapon of mass destruction and he has the ability to use it. But where does his motivation really come in? Does he just want to inflict as much chaos as possible? Does he want to kill a bunch of people? It just wasn't really clear to me what this guy's goal was. And when you set yourself up to that point and then you really try to have another hour, hour and a half where that needs to be wrapped up, I really need you to have a little bit more clarity about what your big bad guy is trying to accomplish for the stakes to be in place for what ultimately happens at the very end of the movie. And, and, just, now you, and just now you could have put a gun to my head and told me, tell me what Safin's ultimate motivation was. And I, I would not have had an answer. And I, I was just curious. I pulled up the Wikipedia plot summary. It said he's used mass producing the technology so he can unleash it globally to kill millions of people and establish a new world order. And I think like, <laughs> like, <laughs> remember, remember when, remember when like Blofeld just wanted a hundred million dollars. Wasn't, wasn't that the good times, man? You just easily say, Oh, he wanted money. Okay, cool. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I just talked about uh, Venom, uh, Let There Be Carnage last night with our friends Josh Brown and Ben Lubin, and uh, obviously an uh, incredibly different movie, but we had the we had the stakes discussion that we so often have when we talk about, like, especially the Marvel movies and how it's always refreshing when one of them thinks of an interesting plot that doesn't involve, like, the entire world being at stake. And, you know, it's it's it's, it's just like, I couldn't even, like, I honestly could not have even told you that that was Safin's goal was to, like, you know, just take over the world because, like, it's such a, like, it, 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 just, it just was, like, Fred said it just like it wasn't focused in such a concise and easy to understand way because he's talking about killing millions of people and then i think they mentioned something about ethnicity at one point i'm like wait so he wants to like so is he a nazi what is he what is it what's, except what's except, except rami malik is not white either yeah true true oh by the way oh yeah did we get to the let's shit on rami malik's performance part of the evening you didn't hear me i was asking i asked fred to shit on it he didn't really so much do it so you're the floor is yours if you want it oh okay here's the thing rami malik has has really pissed me off over the past <laughs> couple of years. I, I, you know, I remember watching like Mr. Robin and thinking, oh, he's okay. Yeah, this is a new guy, you know. He has just, he, he, he can't act. I, I'm starting to, I'm starting to genuinely believe that this man cannot act. He so did you the watch Oscar. the, did you watch the Denzel Washington, Jared Leto, Rami Malek vehicle, the little yeah, things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the, what the hell, what the hell is he doing the first half of that movie? I, I still don't know. Uh, he's uh, doing a weird, uh, uh, 
Uh, yeah, uh, he, that's all he does. That's and, all he does through all his movies. And you, you know, I, I don't blame anyone that like, and I don't think, uh, I don't think Bohemian Rhapsody is really a particularly good movie, but I actually think that's, you know, about as good of a Freddie Mercury impression really as one could ask someone to do. I, I would not have given him the Oscar. That should have been Bradley Cooper's Oscar. No, I thought that, I think um, that it was one of the worst performances of the year. Okay. I, I wasn't that repulsed by it. I, even though I, I had a lot of issues with the movie, but like w- between this and little things, I'm like, it feels like he's just like way too in his head, you know? I don't know. The only the only movie that I've seen where I've been like, oh, he can actually do something a little different if it calls for it is fucking Doctor Doolittle. He voices the fucking gorilla, I think. And okay. like it's the it's the only time he approaches feeling like a like a like a person. Of course, you saw that movie. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's okay. <laughs> You're the only one that thinks it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. But um, yeah, no, like I'm 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 just so uh, done with Rami, man uh here he's he he you know it's such an affectless villain uh with such a nebulous goal uh of course yeah i'm I'm with fred they they're doing a great job when they in playing him up as this threat but rami malik's performance just doesn't match uh you know you look at um what's his name as dr no uh joseph wiseman uh you know granted he's in yellow face but he's but it is still like a good like he feels like a dangerous man when you finally meet him in those last 20 minutes i could kick ramen malik's ass i'm sorry like i i'm not threatened by this man at all god but then again you have the flip side of the coin with that brief blowfield appearance again and i don't know what it is i love christoph waltz for the most part i'm genuinely happy that he has a career in hollywood now he was a television actor in Germany and Austria for decades before he had his big breakthrough. And I was actually someone who was a little familiar with his work before he had his big breakthrough in Inglorious Bastards because I lived in Germany and I watched random movies late at night sometimes and he was in them. And he wasn't like an especially like formidable actor in those, but he was somebody people in Germany knew. And now, of course, everybody knows who he is. I did not so know that. I, that- did, I, did, I did not know you had any level of familiarity with him before uh, Inglorious Bastards. That's interesting. Not a ton, but I must have seen like three or four of his like. Uh, so he was like a, he was like a, he was like a character actor, TV TV stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I'm happy that he's having uh, that career now, and I like a lot of his performances, especially in the two Tarantino movies that he did. But he just didn't work for me at all as Blofeld. He just doesn't really have that ominous, menacing aura that I'm expecting uh, from an actor who takes on that part. Somebody mm-hmm. like Donald Pleasance or Telly Savalas, um, which. Again, Blofeld was an integral part of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which we already talked about. So it's kind of fitting for him to be in this movie as well. But it's just such a weird appearance where he's like in that slow-moving cell that takes forever to have <laughs> coach bond. And then Christoph Waltz loves to communicate in very sort of ominous and oracle-like speech. And he does it as Blofeld too. And it's just such a weird scene. And it's so weird that they brought him back. Just this whole throwback to Spectre just was really off-putting to me because I had such a negative reaction to that movie that I didn't really want all of those reminders that that movie even exists. It goes back to what you were saying, doesn't it? About like, uh, you know, the series wanting to reinvent itself, but also still trying to do the fan service. Like there's a compulsion to have Blowfield because, hey, he's Blowfield. He's Bond's arch nemesis. But like... We don't care about this Blowfield. We don't care about Christoph Waltz's Blowfield. Granted, I do. 
I, I, I'm a little bit more fond of him than you are, not by much, but like, uh, it reminds me actually of, I, I'm not familiar with Sherlock Holmes. I'm not very familiar with Sherlock Holmes, but um, what's the name of the villain in that one? Moriarty? Um, Moriarty, Moriarty. Moriarty. Um, I imagine Moriarty as like, a, as written, he's probably like this criminal genius. He's probably a very menacing figure, but then you watch like the Sherlock show and uh, he's played like with a, almost like a almost camp, if I remember. By, by, by Andrew Scott, who is the villain, one of the villains inspector, along with. Oh, that's Wow. Look at that. <laughs> look at that. And here it feels like that same kind of reversal uh, where, uh, you know, Bond is now like this. Uh, I think I think it's fair to say that this is the most uh, macho rendition of Bond, uh, the most like grizzled action hero esque depiction of Bond since Dalton. And uh you know, in comparison, this Blowfield, instead of being like this menacing overlord kind of figure, you know, he's this kind of smarmy, cryptic little guy. I'm not as familiar with the other Blowfields aside from Telly Savalas after watching On Her Majesty's Secret Service last year. But like, I, I guess my thing was like a, a, having rewatched Spectre and then having watched this, I was like, all right, well, one thing Spectre has going for it that this one didn't was that like, I mean, at least he at least he had some idea of what he wanted to do with that character, even if it's maybe not what your ideal Blofeld would be. It was just to me, it was at least he was doing something that I could wrap my heart arms around more so than whatever the hell Rami Malik was doing. Uh, but at the same time, I wasn't really that invested with him as a character, even if the performance did more for me, because like they didn't really like it was very weird. Like in Inspector, if you recall, they try and like in, in like a few one off lines, like they try and establish that like Blofeld was like basically James's stepbrother when they were younger. Yeah. And, but like, they don't actually like, I don't, it doesn't really do the work in, in the scenes between the two of them to really make you buy that they had that kind of history. And it's, and you really still don't feel it. I, you still don't really feel that when he pops up in no time to die. So it's, 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 it's just like another through line that they're continuing that I just don't think they've really done the proper work to really earn having that be such a, uh, such a constant presence in these movies. And that is, mm. it's just, a, it's just one of the, it's just another issue, you know? Yeah, when you're trying to establish a big supervillain, keeping him mysterious helps, which is again why I think Saifin was a very successful character until Rami Malek actually showed up to play him. Uh, being a pissed off brother with daddy issues isn't really the best way to establish a great big bad guy. And that's what I think they really messed up Inspector, that they tied Blofeld's motivations uh, for being this power-hungry terrorist uh, with him wanting to take revenge against bond because his father paid more attention to bond than he did to him it, it feels petty is what you're saying it, exactly yeah and that's not really the kind of motivation i want out of a guy who's uh running this big globe spanning organization that's so powerful that again uh nobody even knew it existed for ages it, it only took safin to take it down they never even named safin's organization they never even name it yeah yeah i i did he uh yeah, no, I, I heard someone else refer to him early, earlier as like a poison collector or a poison something. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember what it was, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I get. I, I want to ask you guys about some of the other characters in this movie, though. Um, I, I it was a big a big deal was kind of made of it when Lashana Lynch was announced as like the new 007. No one exactly knew what that would mean in the context of this movie. Uh, though I, I think you could, you, I think you probably could have guessed. It kind of meant that it was someone that had, you know was gonna you know 
Bond was going to take their place or something like that. I, I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'd seen Lashana Lynch in anything besides Captain Marvel before this, but uh, I mean, I, it, it's, it's kind of weird because it's like a big choice to like name another character in the last of a, uh, of a run of James Bond movies, 007. And I don't know if they really did enough with her um, to like really make that, make it worth all the, headlines that they generated with that i like i like her and i don't have a problem with the performance itself but it it felt kind of like she has a she has like one action sequence towards the end where she does get to kill that one scientist and she gets to shoot a few people but it felt like there was probably potential to do more with her too did did you feel like there was a lot of meat left on the bone there daniel um yeah i suppose so i remember seeing a headline where lashana lynch was saying that uh you know, she her interpretation of the character was like an anxious sort of super agent kind of character. And I thought about it and I was like, I don't really even I didn't even really get that. Um, there's like that little scene where she seemed pretty um, confident. Yeah, she seemed pretty confident, pretty capable, um, you know, and, you know, that's good. That's good. Uh, she She's good in the role. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't leave the impression that like, you know, Anna de Armas does. I'm not going to lie. So the way I perceive that is it's a bit of a self-aware gag almost because they keep saying it in the movie too. 007 ultimately really is just a number that gets passed down from agent to agent because even Daniel Craig says it in the first movie. Double O agents have a very short life expectancy usually. So it's very obvious that normally 007 would be a number that would just get reassigned and reassigned uh, to new agents whenever uh, the previous owner... um, is no longer needs it either because they get to retire to Jamaica or because they end up getting killed. And if you guys really want to set your brain on fire at some point, uh, if you haven't already, I'd highly recommend watching the 1967 Casino Royale um, which is one hell of an insane movie that was clearly made by a whole bunch of people who are uh, high on the drugs that people in the <laughs> 60s were typically taking. <laughs> Um, But it did establish this really interesting idea that ultimately 007 is really just a number that can get passed around to people. Um, And he actually, Bond actually in that movie assumes M's role running MI6, which makes sense because he is the one with the most experience. And what he does is to confuse the enemy, he just renames every single agent in the organization 007. So you have a whole bunch of them running around in that movie. And it sort of gave credence to this idea that ultimately... Uh, something that fans have long suspected because there's no way that Bond has really been around for 60 years, obviously, and he keeps changing his face, that ultimately it's just meant to be different characters and that his name and his number get passed down from person to person. There are a lot of things in the Bond movies that really discredit that theory because there's always a little bit of contingency even before Daniel Craig took over the part. But to me, ultimately, what Lashana Lynch's character is all about is that Bond retired, he's gone, his superiors assumed he was dead, so, of course, they were going to give his number to somebody else. But fans, of course, are going to read into that. They're going to go crazy on the Internet. And it creates free publicity for a film that probably didn't need it in the first place. So yeah. everybody wins. Yeah, I just I just thought that, like, you know, there's a they try and make a moment of her, like, giving him the number back later in the movie. And it just, you know, especially given where this movie ends. It, you know, it, it, it feels like a really like it feels like a more insignificant moment than it should have been between that and the fact that, like, I just don't think they'd really like she's so skeptical of him for the first part of this movie. There it really isn't like enough there there for us to like really see her, him earning her respect. 
Hmm. And that, that was kind of my issue with what they did with her is it's like, it kind of sets her up to be like someone that's really cool and confident. And then she just kind of like, you know, gives the thing back to him without much, with, with, without us really seeing the why of that, you know? So no, almost, almost as if it was just written that way. <laughs> sure. But like, you know, no, I that's what, what I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually saying that that's what, that's what you're saying. That like, you know, it, it feels writerly. It feels like, Oh, it, we, James Bond is the hero of this story. Let's pass it to him, but it doesn't really feel organic to the actual like characters. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I want to talk about the very, very end, but it, w- w- is there anything aside from the very, very end you guys want to touch on that we haven't already talked about? We're not doing a spoiler section. I just wanted to kind of end on that note because I feel like it ties into where we want to see Bond go from here. Uh, any, right. any, anything, anything else earlier in the movie, Fred, that we didn't touch on that you thought was worth mentioning? Yeah, I'm probably in the minority on this, to be honest, but I actually really liked Billie Eilish's theme song, even though oh. it's kind of weird, even though it's kind of weird that it's been playing on the radio for the past year and a half already. <laughs> Uh, when it showed up in the credits again, I was thinking, oh, wait a minute, that was the theme for this movie, even though I've been hearing it over and over again. That's kind of strange how COVID does that. Um, but yeah, it kind of like felt fitting to me, like this haunting a little bit slower than some of the songs we've gotten in the past, um, because ultimately it serves as a bit of a requiem almost to this character. And that's very appropriate for this type of movie they were making. I actually had never heard of the song before, uh, you know, being in the theater. Um, really? Yeah, I hadn't heard of the song, and I'm not going to lie. I took the opportunity to go use the restroom. Um, but from the, what I heard of the song, I liked it. I remember seeing some people going like, oh, it's not that good. And I was like, oh, no, I like this one. I don't have strong feelings on it, but I, I watched the first two minutes of the opening credits. And then when I figured there was probably enough time left in the in the opening for me to like do it, I ran and refilled my Coke Icy and then ran back. The <laughs> uh, so, that, I, you know, that, that was that. I have I, my, my other thought, actually, uh, before we move on, is on a different Billy. And I wanted to mention, shout out Billy Magnuson. I actually kind of liked his little uh, heel turn that he had in this movie. Um, you know, oh, I, don't know. I, I, I never trust him when I see him in a movie. He's got a very untrustworthy face. I, I totally agree. But is I, I, you know, I guess it's, you know, it's not the most original thing to have, like to have some other guy turn into like, you know, a double agent or whatever. But I, I kind of enjoyed whatever. I kind of enjoyed the choices he made with that performance where he was like kind of just there being like, the generic state department dude that was like very admirable, like had a lot of admiration for bond. And I, and, and I, but he has, because he has that punchable face, you also, you also kind of buy it when he flips in the other direction. I was like, Oh man, I wish I, I, I mean, it's so, there's something to be said for what, leaving you wanting more of a character, whether it be uh, Paloma or him. But I, I was like, Oh man, I could have used a little more of him and a little less or a lot less of Rami Malek. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, so I want to talk about the very, very end and that like, you know, Again, this isn't a spoiler section. I'm gonna put a disclaimer up there right in our description. But you know, we 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 haven't actually mentioned the fact that you know, uh, Bond. You know, when he uh, real after upon realizing that he uh, before before Safin like you know uh, exposed him to the uh, a strain of the virus that that would prevent him from coming into contact with Madeline or his daughter. We didn't talk about the fact there's a baby in this movie either. Uh, which I mean, whatever. I I it was it was I thought it was cute. Uh, but, uh, it ends up, it ends up that bond finally had a love child 50 years of like, or 60 years of like reckless sexual activity finally caught up to him. Uh, and, and, uh, w- 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 you know, it, it just, one got one, one slipped by the goalie. So bond has a kid now and, <laughs> and he, he finds out that like, uh, Safin is, you know, exposed him to this strain, won't allow him to come into contact with Madeline or his daughter. And instead of trying to keep on living, he, he just like, you know, fucks around on this Island and, uh, lets the airstrike take him out. Um, 
I, I guess my question is, uh, I, I guess, I, I guess I'll, I'll guess I ask the question and then we'll, and then we'll ask where it goes from here. But I think it kind of begs the question, like, you know, we've never actually seen James Bond die in a movie, you know? Uh, and a lot of people have talked about like where we're going to go from here with, with another bond. So I, I guess my question is, uh, what, twofold. I'll start with you, Fred. What did you think of the decision to like actually have like Bond make that sacrifice? Because it's unlike anything we've seen in a movie before. And uh, what do you think it says about where we go from here? Because I mean, there's there's all this talk about like who the next Bond should be. Should it be should should we have a woman play Bond? Uh, should it be just another guy? But like when you've actually killed someone, like I mean, should it actually be a James Bond or then you're gonna have a Jane Bond? Do you have another character? Have you even been able to give that much thought yourself, Fred? So I think it's important to separate two things here, one being uh, whether the choice that he makes is in character and uh, whether I agree with the reasons for Mm -hmm. why he makes that choice. And I think the former is a pretty unequivocal yes. Um, We've seen enough of him to know that uh, he's kind of made the transition now from really bitter and uh, aggressive loner, especially after Vesper died, uh, into someone who you know, basically channeled all of that anger and aggressiveness into serving his country. And that's what he said at one point to M2, that he is motivated by his duty, that he's really motivated now by just focusing all of his attention on um, making sure that people stay safe because he wasn't able to save Vesper. So in that sense, uh, him making that sacrifice at the end, it was in character. That's something I think Bond would do. And honestly, I think... um, all of the other iterations of Bond in the past might have done as well if they had been given the chance, but that was never really in the cards because people didn't really want to see that happen before. And because I'm not actually sure whether any actor in the past has consciously left the role before his final movie was actually made. A lot of times that was more of an accident where the movie was already finished. It took forever to get another one made and they just decided, eh, it's going on for too long now. I'm probably too old to play the part again. So let's just yeah, quietly drop is... out. I mean, Roger Moore was old as hell by the end of his run though, right? <laughs> yeah, he was almost 60 by that point. Yeah. Um, but that being so... said, I, I, I was just saying that like, yeah, no, I think that this is the um, the only time a Bond movie has been billed as the last one from this actor. Every mm-hmm. other time, like you've said, it's just been like, you know, it just turned out to be the last one. Yeah. So in that sense, I like that they chose to have a very finite uh, performance uh, from Daniel Craig, who I think really earned his chops over the past 15 years playing this role. So he deserved a finite send-off as opposed to just some random goodbye where he might come back Hmm. sometime later as a cameo. Um, At the same time, though, we already said that none of us really bought his relationship with Madeline. And that's really what drives this decision because he no longer can be around them. He can't really spend time with her, see his daughter grow up. Um, So there was supposed to be a very pronounced emotional potency in that scene that I didn't really feel. And I'm not convinced most people in the audience actually felt. Um, I will say he was already wounded by that point. And it was highly unlikely he would have made it off the island regardless. So it's not just driven by his decision uh, that he no longer wants to live because he can't be with Madeline anymore. But that really plays such a major factor in that decision that what they wanted me to feel at that point just didn't happen. And that's a very unfortunate way for it to end that way because they really had a chance here to end it on a very strong, powerful note. 
And because they never laid the groundwork properly or they tried to, but it just didn't materialize that way. Uh, it just fell a little flat for me. And yeah, I, yeah. I'll come back to you a second and ask about future Bond movies. But I guess what, 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 so I can ask Daniel, so I can ask Daniel to comment on the death too. But I guess what I'll say is that like, I kind of agree with you though. Like, I think his performance, his performance is like such that like, you know, you, you could feel that, that you could maybe feel he was ready to die, even if from a storytelling perspective, like maybe didn't set it up as well as they could have. What, what about, what, what were your thoughts on it, Daniel? Um, I, 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 for the most part, agree. Um, the fact is we don't really have an emotional investment in his relationship with Madeline. We don't really have his, we certainly don't really have that much of an investment in his relationship with his love child that we met 20 minutes before. She's very, she was very cute though. She was very that's cute. actually what I was actually what I'm getting at. Um, I think that his interactions with the child are are good. I think that his interactions with Madeline, if it weren't for the fact that I did not care about her at all going in, I think they they work. They're workable. I I do like uh, like Fred said. Um, this is a man who I think we have seen over the course of the movies. Uh, him, you know, open up closed shut shut people out again and then learn to open up again uh and you know i i i did i did kind of buy it toward the end i did i still didn't i wasn't like tearing up or anything like that toward the end but like i i did feel something i i think it's fair to say um admittedly admittedly not gonna lie um there are there are we'll just say that there are some parallels between what bond was going through in this movie um, you know, his issue, his inability to trust people getting in the way with of the relationship with the girl he cares about and such. There are some parallels there with what I'm going through right now. So like there might be a little bit of that. There might be a little bit of a, well, you know, they, they made up. They made up. That feels good to me. It might be a little bit of wish fulfillment for me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but um, I do think that ultimately I think the send off was appropriate for the character and uh, for this era you know, that tried to make him feel like a real person. And I think they did as good a job as uh, any other movie in the franchise, certainly. Fair enough. So I guess my last question, Fred, is then uh, the way I asked it before, I was more like, oh, wh what kind of person do you want to see take over Bond? But I think it's a bigger question than that. Whether it be, do you have a strong, based on like, you know, where we left off here and how you felt about this run of movies, do you have a strong opinion on the kind of person you want to see play Bond, but also the, t the, the tone of the movies you want to see them go towards, if you want to see them go in a different direction towards some of these earlier movies we have referenced, or do, do, do they stay with the more serious tone we have here, or is it more just like you do just like to see a cool director take over and then you'll trust their vision? Yeah, I think the tonal aspects are far more important than who ends up playing the part. Because the thing about um, British entertainment is that they have a very similar franchise in Doctor Who, where they every few years can swap out the main actor and they, the character always has a bit of a different personality. Uh, but really the key part of that show is to reinvent itself so it can stay fresh in uh, an era where there's increasing competition in its genre. And Doctor Who is still around after 60 years because they've more or less successfully been able to do that. And I think the Bond franchise of the past 15 years, again, they tried to take that step into the 21st century, um, but they were still held back by this attachment to nostalgia. And whoever ends up playing the part next, and I really don't have strong opinions on who that should be, um, they really need to come up with ways to make the franchise feel a bit more modern uh, while retaining some of the quintessential elements that define the Bond franchise. And that's going to be hard. 
it's going to be incredibly hard because a lot of what people associate with the Bond franchise is stuff that no longer flies in the 2020s. And I think the issue the Bond franchise is also going to have is that, in my opinion at least, they're no longer the trend-setting flagpole action franchise in cinema right now. That position has been taken over by Mission Impossible, where the action scenes are more exciting, more state-of-the-art. I find Ethan Hunt to be a significantly more enjoyable character than Bond. And while he definitely doesn't... Mm. While he... Well, he doesn't necessarily have the depth that Daniel Craig brought to the part. I feel like there's also a sort of sense of humor and self-awareness that Tom Cruise brings to the part, especially because he does all the stunts himself. um, That will always make people come back to the franchise thinking, okay, I wonder what crazy shit they're going to pull next. And that's the kind of hook that I want in an action franchise. Or will Tom Cruise die in the making of a movie and I'll watch a CGI Tom Cruise for the last 30 minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, people joke about it, but there's, a, there's an element of truth to that. Like, I come back to those movies because I'm wondering, okay, is he going to dangle off a helicopter again? Is he going to uh, free fall off uh, the Eiffel Tower? What is the next crazy thing that they have planned? And while I don't necessarily need the next Bond actor to put his or her life on the line every single time, there is something that sets the Mission Impossible franchise apart. And I really want the Bond franchise to take that next step as well, where people associate something particular with the Bond movies again when they return to the cinema, uh, as opposed to wondering what kind of uh, gloomy existential threat Daniel Craig's Bond is going to face this time. And I did not realize they already filmed Mission Impossible 7 and they are currently filming Mission Impossible mm-hmm. 8. Tom Cruise never sleeps. Uh, nope. da- Daniel, do you have strong opinions on where you want to see Bond go? Very. Uh, I, I, I need get make Bond goofy again. Make yeah. Bond goofy again. Uh, I understand why we got the Craig era. I understand people didn't like the excesses of Brosnan. I actually did. I liked silly Brosnan. I think the sillier it got, the better. I didn't. I don't actually really like Goldeneye that much. Um, I, I like the the one where he's a uh, what's the last one was it Die Another Day the one with Halle Berry where he's yeah, surfing yep. on the incredibly fake uh, that's one of the better <laughs> that's one of his best movies of course that's it one is of Pierce, one of the best movies of the Brosnan era um, I enjoy that one too yeah yeah it's fun that. it's fun it's stupid it's fun but I understand why you know after you know uh, almost I think yeah it was ten years of that you know you wanted to do something different um, and I understand that like you know. Uh, you know, even Goldeneye is sillier than, you know, License to Kill, certainly. And you understand that why they got Dalton, you know, why Dalton's era took the turn that it did in the aftermath of like Octopussy, uh, uh, Moonraker, you know, uh, the, the Bond franchise, I think it needs to have that kind of push-pull dynamic. You know, you go silly, you go, you know, goofy and big and ostentatious and shit and then you peel back you go gritty you go stripped down you know you get more somber and serious is uh, i was just gonna say when you when you when you envision that kind of tone for a bond movie or have you even gotten far enough to think about what particular actor you think would be good to play the part then to uh, suit that tone I don't honestly. I don't know enough British actors to really say. I've always mm-hmm. said Richard Iowati. Like I like the idea of like um, 
you know, Richard Ayoade plays Q, you know, Richard Ayoade, uh, he's a uh, British comic, very nerdy kind of guy. I think he, you, you've seen the IT crowd. No, I have not. Well, he plays like the geek, one of the geeky guys in the IT crowd. Um, he's a director. He's the guy who directed, I think, Submarine and uh, The Double, the movie with um, uh, Jesse Eisenberg hmm, playing okay. him and, uh, and a double of himself. Richard Iowati, like he's a very, you know, dirty, nebbish guy. Uh, I see, I would love to see a movie where like, oh, he's originally Q, but circumstances happen and he ends up having to step up and become, assume the identity of James Bond, you know, like something silly, something goofy. Um, admittedly, uh, that space has been slightly taken over by the Kingsman series, but, um, you know, like, uh, you know, I go back and I watch like the classic Bonds, like the, the 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 great, like, you know, garish production design and such. And I miss that. I miss that quality in this modern era of Bond. I just want them to, you know, stretch a little bit. I want I want them to stretch a little bit, man. Yeah, I'd be totally fine with something like that. It's funny because I, I hadn't, you know, up until I up until the last couple of weeks when I started hearing other people raise that question, I hadn't really thought about the kind of vibe I want to go for because I feel like I've just up until I started these, this kind of rewatch last year, I hadn't really, I, I'd mostly just been living in the Craig world. I hadn't rewatched a lot of these movies. So I hadn't really been envisioning what they might look like with other tones, even though I had previously watched the, some of the early stuff. Uh, and, but like I had given some thought to the next bond when everyone kept talking about Idris Elba should be bond. And I was like, ah, well too late now. He's like freaking no one started being bonded at the, quite at that age, even if Roger Moore started fairly old. Yeah. And, and since this era has, you know, ended with so much of the bond is old now, uh, like, yeah, you know, yeah, you, a, you're covering right. the same ground. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think I saw a, uh, I think I saw like a I, I think it would kind of feel like it might have even just been seeing him in some interviews, but maybe also in uh, when he hosted SNL. But I, I I came away from some of the those moments thinking like I, I'd be totally fine if Daniel Kaluuya was Bond, and I think he could be like a comedic actor, but I don't know. If oh, I could... yeah, no, no, no. I remember I, I wanted uh, I was one of my pitches. I want Daniel Kaluuya to play serial killer Bond. Okay, because sure. he you 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 remember you remember Daniel Kaluuya in Widows? That oh, nigga is fucking terrifying. That yeah. nigga is scary. And well, he he could honestly, be, he, I could be a Bond villain. I'd be fine if you want to be a one off. I like the idea of Bond being played as like a a bona fide psychopath, like a, a bona fide. Everyone is afraid of him. Uh, you know, everyone when he come <laughs> walks on the corner, everyone finds something to go do. Um, you know, kind of like a, a this is a frame a reference that nobody is gonna get. I understand that. 1970s Shaw Brothers movie starring David Chang, Vengeance, where, you know, every time he's about to get into a fight, normally with those Kung Fu movies, they're just, they just, they're in it for the chivalry. They're in it to test their martial skill. That movie, the hero, David Chang, pretty boy, he just, you get the sense that he just likes cutting people. Like right, well, every time a fight's about to break out, he smiles a little bit. I want that for Bond. I'm not against that version of a Daniel Kaluuya Bond movie, but I'm just saying, I, I don't, I can see him doing some kind of like, you know, charming, winking type of humor, but maybe not the goofy thing that you were expecting. And if they had gone with a female Bond, like I, I, I would like fully support. Like I, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to Lashana Lynch if like that would ever happen. But like I, they didn't show enough of her here to like have me fully endorse that or be fully against it. I just don't know. I think right. I, I, I could watch. I, I could get behind like Emily Blunt as Bond too, and I think she has the comedic chops and the action chops to like fully do something like that. But I had been more thinking of it in terms of actors instead of tone. But I, I agree. Like I don't want more of this, and I think they're definitely going to have to start younger because they're going to start out thinking like this will be someone that would do this for five or six movies. Um, and at that point, like you're not. So you're, they're going to start 
with someone like probably in their early, th- early to mid thirties or something like that. So um, if they want to do that, then like, that's cool. But like, I definitely think like, it would be a good idea to like go with something that's like at least a little lighter to start. If it wants to build towards something dark, but like why not have some kind of soft reset? And, uh, and yeah, so I, I, I think that that about wraps it up. Uh, I, I feel like we've really thoroughly covered that guys. And it seems like we were all like, you know, fairly mixed though, maybe like a little down on how they ended the era, but you know, uh, you, you can't win them all. A- any other final thoughts on uh, Daniel Craig era of bond or no time to die, Fred? I'm just super excited for Daniel Craig that he can bank his $100 million now that he's going to get from <laughs> Netflix for starring in those Knives Out sequels. Uh. Um, yeah, what, what a great gig he has. No, but, but in all seriousness, I mean, I'm kind of glad that he's going to leave that role behind now because um, he's occasionally in between Bond movies made some really interesting stuff that displayed a side of him that I want to see more of, uh, mainly thinking his performance in uh, Logan Lucky. Mm, Logan and, Lucky. Yep. Uh, that man loves a silly southern accent he loves it oh yeah absolutely and <laughs> i i want to see more of that i mean he's a genuinely funny guy and in the bond movies he was always so glum and so down on everything so i was genuinely surprised to see him uh, display some comedic chops and he'll have plenty of opportunities to do it in knives out uh, part two and i believe part three as well they've already announced that too um yeah i'm just looking forward to him uh doing some more um diverse stuff as opposed to just uh, being typecast in that particular role he's been stuck in for 15 years so in that sense i'm kind of glad that it's over and that he's going to have uh, additional opportunities to uh, show uh, show us different sides of him yeah any other final thoughts from you daniel oh yeah i forgot to mention uh at one point um hugh dennis makes a cameo and I, I exploded in Who, laughter in the theater. Hugh Dennis is a British comedian. He, you know, very, he does a lot of panel shows. Uh, he's one of the regular panelists on Mock the Week, uh, which is like a satirical news thing on the BBC. Um, I, I, look, I was an Anglophile. I still watch my panel shows. I still watch QI and shit. Like, I, I saw Hugh Dennis and I was like, oh, shit, it's Hugh. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I was happy to see him. And, uh, you know, you know what? Respect to Jeffrey Wright. We didn't talk about him. I just want to say that I think that he's been, you know, he's always, I always like seeing Jeffrey Wright do his thing. Uh, You know, Felix doesn't do much in this movie, but, you know, Felix has been one of my favorite uh, characters in the Bond franchise. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, he's played by like, uh, oh man, what's his name? The guy who plays Mitchell. Oh man, what's his name? Roy, Roy, uh, Roy, yeah, Roy, yeah, Roy Ward Baker or something like that. Um, uh, Joe Do, Joe Don, Joe Don Baker, uh, Joe Don oh, Baker. Oh, all right, right. Yeah, and uh, I love. Uh, I just saw Never Say Never Again today. Bernie Casey plays Felix in that one, which is amazing. Uh, I I like Felix the character, and you know Jeffrey Wright. You know I think had the most emo- the best emotional send off of the of the uh, of the film. So respect. My right. first thought when he showed up was, oh, the watcher is interfering. <laughs> Fred, anything else you've been watching recently you want to shout out before we sign off? Uh, not so much uh, things that I've been watching recently. I've actually really fallen behind on uh, watching movies and TV shows because I've been uh, doing so many things these past few weeks. Uh, I do want to remind people, though, that Succession is coming back to HBO this weekend. Mm. Uh, Hell yeah. I assume, you're, I assume you're posting this next week, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'll be uh, it'll, it'll the first right, episode so will have aired. It just premiered last Sunday, guys. So make sure to watch <laughs> that if you haven't yet. 
um, yeah, lots of exciting things coming out over the next few months. It's kind of funny. It seems like they're announcing a new uh, premiere date uh, every uh, every day now. Uh, I didn't even know there the was a one... spring movie coming out. Yeah, the oh, yeah, one... yeah. The, the, the trailer dropped, and I, I did not know that either. Yeah, yeah. And the other one I want to uh, also uh, have people put on their calendars, even though it's still a while. On December tenth, uh, the final season of The Expanse uh, is going to start airing. So uh, I'm telling people now because uh, that'll give you time to catch up on the previous five seasons. It's a terrific show. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, make sure you're caught up on uh, that before the final season airs. I highly recommend it if you're into uh, some great science fiction that's actually set in our solar system as opposed to in a galaxy far, far away that you don't really have any genuine connection to. So I highly recommend yeah. The Expanse. I was, chatting, I was chatting with a friend of the podcast, Hannah, about The Expanse the other day on... Uh, 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 because she's just like she's a fairly big fan of that type of sci-fi and i'm like god i have not i i cannot tell you the last time i caught up on a show like that was like i was like five seasons behind on before like pre-vaccine or uh aside from the pre-vaccine part of the pandemic like i've not tackled a project like that and maybe maybe the expanse would be one that it's like worth me doing that for but i just haven't like uh tackled any kind of like binge of that magnitude uh outside of like the pandemic when i had nothing else to do uh, so yeah, um, it looks like we might've, uh, lost Dane off the zoom. So I'm probably just going to like, uh, wrap up then, uh, Fred, do you want to pull your letterbox? Yes, of course. Please do follow me on letterboxd. Uh, my uh, name on there is Fred Kolb, F-R-E-D-K-O-L-B. Uh, like I said, I've been uh, slacking off a bit these past few weeks about posting reviews regularly, but I'm finally getting back in the rhythm. So, uh, please do, uh, read my content. I, well, you're still way better than me. Like I, I already saw you posted your No Time to Die one. I didn't read it because I don't usually read yeah, your reviews before we, uh, before we record podcasts on those particular movies. But I mean, I'm still like three weeks behind on all mine, whereas you're like five days behind on yours. So uh, <laughs> I, th I, I think like I, th I think you're I think you're doing okay uh, as usual. I'm Josh Chernovoy, J O S H J U R N O V O I on both Twitter and Letterbox. The podcast Twitter is at Rewind Movie Pod. The podcast email is the Rewind Movie Pod at gmail.com. Uh, coming up next, uh, depending on the order in which we release all this stuff, they'll probably have one on The Last Duel. And uh, I, don't, I don't really know what's after that. But the, again, there's just a whole mass of stuff in June. October. June. Uh, oh, and the oh, yes. French dispatch. Right. So uh, I, as I, I think I might have previously mentioned that on the Venom pod. But yes, Fred is going to be coming back with Ben later in this month to talk about Dune. And friend of the podcast, Nick, will probably be coming back to talk about uh, uh, the French Dispatch. So just a loaded month. And then Halloween Kills. Our, our friends, our, our good friends, Kayla and Adam, uh, are going to be joining for that because they joined for the first Halloween three years ago. But uh, unfortunately, uh, their dog Med Melody is going through a little bit of a medical emergency right now that, that might prevent them from getting to the theater as soon as they can so uh we will I, I will wait to probably watch that until they can join for the podcast on it but i just i don't know when that one will be coming out maybe it'll be delayed to the point where we can actually re really do it right around halloween because that would be uh, pretty timely so again thanks again to fred for joining thanks to daniel for joining his letterbox is at felonious funk and thanks to all of you for listening we'll see you next time